The Old Testament reading this morning is from Joshua. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. It's on page 216 in your pew Bibles. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. The second reading in the New Testament is from John. It's chapter 4, verses 39 to 42, and it's on page 1066. I like that number. Actually, it's not. It's on page 1067. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. 
couple of minutes while I uh, get the bits and pieces together. I was quite impressed there wasn't more of a rush, actually, to uh, two readings and a sermon, but um, still you're, uh, you're trapped now, unless, unless you can pretend to hear a child crying that, um, that might conceivably be yours, in which case you can, uh, you can shoot out and uh, see what's happening. Radio mic on, all set. So um, we're thinking about um, sin this morning. Um, now, for most of us, that's a very um, theoretical construct. I do, uh, I do appreciate um, it's something other people do, so that's helpful. So we can all talk about in a very relaxed and neutral fashion uh, and examine other people in the Bible who are who are far worse than we are. And we can go home and have Sunday lunch and feel good. That sometimes seems to be the, uh, the theory of church practice. Let's, let's see if we can take a slightly different slant. Um, now, um, now, one of the, um, the interesting things is that John was actually preaching on this uh, earlier this morning. So, um, so I have encouraged him to sort of, you know, heckle if I get it wrong or, uh, or go astray or just aren't really as good as he was. And... Um, for those of you who, uh, who would like to have two sort of you know, grabs at the cherry, it's always worth remembering that St. Mark's has a service often on the same day, usually earlier. So quite often you can go and get maybe the same sort of uh, the same topic talked about by two different people. Um, if really two readings and a sermon is not enough, then, uh, then there's your opportunity. Now, let's have a think about these questions. So if we go on to the next slide for a moment. Who does God speak to? Who does God speak to? Who can do God's work? And who can be saved? Now, as a church, and as the church generally, as Christians, we spend a lot of time on that that third question, and and I hope you appreciate the answer is actually very simple. John 3.16. God sent his one and only son that everybody who calls upon him can be saved. So there's nobody who cannot be saved. And I think that's generally something that we all agree about. Um, Sometimes in the practicalities of it, we find it a little bit difficult to accept around specific people. But in general, who can be saved? Everybody. That is the extraordinary message of the Christian gospel. That Jesus has paid the price, and therefore we don't need to. We can have a relationship with God. End of story. But in a way, it's, it's sort of not quite the end of the story that's expounded in the Bible. Because once you have a relationship with God, then things start to happen. And I think the interesting thing about these two women and uh, a number of the other examples in the Bible as well that we could think about is that it explores how they sort of came into a relationship with God and then what happened afterwards. And it thinks a bit more about those first two questions. Who does God speak to? And who can do God's work? Now, this wasn't in the passage that, uh, that we thought about, but I think the, um, the most dramatic example, if you like, and 
without wanting to be sort of pejorative to non-human members of the animal kingdom, uh, I think the lowest common denominator in terms of who does God speak to and who can do God's work is the donkey belonging to the prophet Balaam. Um, Quite a long story, but back in the Old Testament, um, there was a prophet called Balaam um, who'd been told by God to go and prophesy, give God's message. And Balaam was a bit worried about the message he'd been given to, uh, to pass on. And so he was, uh, he was reluctant to do that. And uh, his donkey spoke to him. Doing God's work, speaking out God's message. So if a donkey can do it, then it should be possible for quite a range of other people to convey God's message. So I think, bear that one in mind as we, uh, as we think a bit more about this. So, who does God speak to? Who can do God's work? Who can be saved? And the answer to those questions is actually the same. God can speak to anybody. God is not limited by who you are, what you've done, what your level of faith is, where you live, what your family background is, how clever you are, how clever you feel you're not. Because God has no limits. Does he? We all, we all believe that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, but then we think there are things he can't do. And that doesn't make sense. So God can speak to anybody. And who can do God's work? Well, actually, because God has no limits, anybody can actually do God's work. Sometimes they realise they're doing God's work. Sometimes, of course, they don't realise they're doing God's work. Pharaoh, when he threw the Israelites out of Egypt, was doing God's work. He didn't realise that. He thought he was opposing God. But actually, it was all something that God wrapped up into his plan. Many, many other examples. Let's have a look at the next slide. Now, the interesting thing about both of these uh, women, particularly Rahab, if we think about this one, so I think it's the sort of the clearest example. Rahab was not a Jew. Rahab was an enemy of the Jewish people. Or the Jewish people were enemies of the, uh, the tribe that she belonged to, the city of Jericho. They were at war. At that point, it wasn't actually a fighting war. It was just a sort of staring at each other across the valley type war. But it was very obvious from what the Israelites had done previously that they were coming for Jericho. Jericho was in their path. It was basically the most obvious route to get into what was to become the promised land and then go south towards uh, Jerusalem and the rest of uh, the land that God had promised, the land of Canaan. So Rahab is not a Jew and she is an enemy of the Israelites. She would appear therefore to be an enemy of God. And yet, somehow, God has got through to her. 
and I think if you if you read the story carefully, it's you know it's always a little difficult to know quite what Rahab was was like. And she's described as a prostitute in the Old Testament or a, a harlot in various versions of the New. Um, I think that probably underplays it. Um, it was her house, so whether she was an innkeeper in which some of the rooms were used by some people doing things that she didn't really approve of, or whether she was running all out a full out and out brothel, we don't know. But I think calling her a prostitute sort of plays down the extent of her sort of uh, her business venture, if you like. Now, she would have had contact with a lot of people coming through. And she's clearly been listening to them. If you look back at that account, she says, yeah, we've heard. We've heard the stories of what the Israelis have been doing, what the Jewish nation has been doing as it's swept towards well, swept across what is now Syria, swept towards Jericho. And she's been thinking about it. So her mind is already turned towards God, rather than away. And I think that's a very, very important, important point. The Samaritan woman, similarly, was waiting for the Messiah. There's a lot of back and forth, a lot of sort of Jewish Samaritan jibing going on in that conversation. You may not know the history of the Samaritans. They were actually um, one of the sort of the two parts of the Jewish kingdom that broke up. They were the northern part. They didn't have access to Jerusalem. They had to worship away from the temple. And they were looked down on by the Jews who had the temple. The Jews thought they were the sort of the true sort of a um, remnant, if you like, of the Jewish nation and the Samaritans up the top were the people who'd sort of, you know, some of them hadn't left when the rest of the Jews were taken away in the great sort of um, exodus with the Assyrian kings and things like that. Some of them had stayed in the land. Um, some of them had come back. but They didn't have access to Jerusalem. They were looked down on. And so there was a lot of jibing going on. If you read that conversation, you can see the the little, the little jabs that she makes to Jesus as a Jew. But she's been thinking about the Messiah. She says to him at one point, yeah, well, when the Messiah comes, then we'll start to, to see all these things. So she's already looking. Let's um, just try a little exercise for a moment. Steve got us doing actions earlier. I'm not going to get you to do embarrassing actions. But if you could all just sort of stand up for a second... Um, it's not going to be embarrassing, it's not going to be difficult, it's not going to be sort of requiring any great physical, uh, physical exertion. Um, if you're not sort of able to stand, that's fine, that doesn't matter. Now, what I would like you to do is to turn your back on me. So for those of you there, if you can just sort of turn your head or face away, for those of you there, face against the back wall. Now what I'd like you to do is just put your hands or your fingers into your ears or your hands over your ears. Okay, so you can take your hands off your ears now. Continue facing the back. It's, it's very difficult for you to see and hear what's going on at the front of the church when you're facing this way. And that's the thing with us and with our friends and with our neighbours. That if they're facing in the wrong direction, it's very, very difficult for them to see or hear God. 
But if they're facing in the right direction, so let's all turn around this way now. You know, obviously it's much easier for you to see, and you can welcome to sit down again, unless you now feel the need to run out to the covert chapel, in which case, of course, you can. It's much easier to see, obviously, when you're facing in the right direction. And this was the key with Rahab and the Samaritan woman, and many, many of the other people we read about in the Bible. It wasn't sort of where they were. It wasn't what they were doing. It wasn't how they were living their lives right at that moment that made the difference. It was the fact they were looking in the right direction. Rahab was running a brothel. The Samaritan woman had a series of husbands and was now living with a man who wasn't a husband. We don't know much else about her life. If you think about someone like David, who uh, John was reminding me this morning, he was preaching on, David deliberately had a man killed so that he could sleep with that man's wife. Or rather, he had already slept with that man's wife and he wanted to cover up the impending evidence of that action. She was pregnant. Many, many other examples of the Bible where people are in the middle of doing dreadful things, behaving really badly, living terrible lives. But God can speak to anybody if they're listening. And that really is the only, the only caveat. We have the ability to face the wrong way and put our hands over our ears. We can cut ourselves off from God. And one of the really clever things the devil does with sin is he makes us do that. One of the, um, the striking images in the Bible when it's the story of Genesis, the story of sort of how sin first came into the world, um, and there's that vision or that, that picture of Adam and Eve hiding. They hid themselves because they were ashamed. That's what the devil does to us, to our friends, to our neighbours, to our family, to people we work with. He persuades us to be ashamed of ourselves and of what we've done. And he persuades us to think that God will never talk to us. <coughs> A bit like, I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of... Um, you know, coming across somebody famous. Um, I once went, met um, Matthew Good, the actor, in a, in a toilet in a restaurant in Covent Garden. And uh, he was coming out, I was going in, and so, of course, we just passed like ships in the night. But there was that flash, that moment when I recognised him, and I thought, I, c- I could just stop and say, oh, wow, you know, hi, you're Matthew Good, I love your work, I think your films are fantastic, I'm a great fan. Would have been a bit strange in the middle of a gent's toilet, but, you know, could still have been enthusiastic. But there's also that sense that, that, you know, I mean, he's famous and I'm not, and he wouldn't want to talk to me. We all have that sense of, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not quite worthy enough for that interaction. And we get it big time when it comes to God. But these two women were on the lookout. They were alert, just a little bit. They weren't praying They weren't worshipping in the temple. They hadn't gone to church. They weren't doing anything religious. The Samaritan woman was just getting water. It's like washing up 
or, you know, doing the ironing or just commuting or whatever it is. It was just everyday life. Rahab was running her brothel when these spies came in. It's just every day. Not prayer, but they were already not facing away with their hands over their ears. They were a little turned around. Let's have a look at the next one. Now what is, um, is then extraordinary is that God took that slight level of attention, that just that tiny crack of an opening in their consciousness and did something extraordinary with it. The Samaritan woman, after one conversation with Jesus, went back and told the whole town. The whole town. And it says many of the people then came out of the town to talk to Jesus. Literally that day and the day after. Absolutely amazing that that, just that one encounter, that one tiny opening in her mind that said, yeah, well, I think there's a Messiah and I'm sure he's going to make things. Wow, this guy is that Messiah. Bang. Her whole world has changed. And then she changes the whole world around her. Rahab is the reason why there was a promised land full of the people to whom it had been promised. If she'd betrayed those spies, they would never have gone back to Joshua. They would never have told him that Jericho was ready for the taking. And who knows then what would have happened. Maybe the Israelites would have had to have turned around and gone back into the desert. Maybe they would have tried to attack Jericho without God's help and been defeated. We just don't know. But it was an absolutely pivotal moment in the history of the Jewish nation. What is even more extraordinary, and... um, I didn't know this until fairly recently. We actually looked at Rahab uh, and a number of other women in our Bible study group um, just before the sort of summer break. Um, and I came across this passage in Matthew. Matthew 1.5. Salmon married Rahab. Okay. And their son was Boaz, who married Ruth. And the reason why I came across it is because we were looking at Ruth as well as Rahab. They had Obed who was the grandfather of David, who was the ancestor of Jesus. So not only did Rahab help with the founding of the Jewish state, but she was actually an ancestor of the Messiah who was talking to the Samaritan woman. So a brothel owner, a thousand years ago, prior to Jesus, maybe slightly less, had an inkling that there was more than what she was seeing. She was on the lookout for God. And when God came, and when God spoke through those two spies, she was able to make that connection. She was able to make that contact. And that's all God needs. All God needs is that little bit of a turn. He's all powerful. He's all loving. He has all the resources to make everything happen. To change lives. To change the world. To change relationships. But what he needs from us and from our friends and our families and our neighbours and our work colleagues is that little turn. 
if we want to face away and put our hands over our ears, he's not going to take our hands off. He's not going to turn us round. Things will happen around us, and for some people they will have moments where God really does break through. But God is a God who gives us that ability to choose. And he gives that to our friends and to our neighbours. So let's have a look at the last slide. So what I'd like you to do over the coming week is to think about these questions. Who do you know who is too sinful to start a relationship with God? Do you know somebody who is running a crack den or a brothel? Possibly not. They'd probably be too sinful to start a relationship with God Do you know a neighbour who regularly throws their snails into your garden? I mean, that's close, isn't it? You know, we all know people that we look at them and we think, probably not. They're too cynical, they're too rich, they're too poor, they're too drunk, they're too stupid, they're too unlike me. They're too sinful to start a relationship with God. What these stories and many, many others in the Bible tell us is that's not true. We weren't too sinful to start a relationship with God. And we are just as sinful as our friends and our neighbours and our families and our work colleagues. Because there's not a scale of sin. There's not a scale of sin. Sin is a binary thing. You either have it or you don't. And if you have it, then you are living in death unless somebody's done something about it. Somebody, of course, is Jesus and the thing that he's done about it is to die and to rise again for us. We have to accept that. So do our friends and our neighbours and our families and our work colleagues. But that's all. They just have to turn. We just have to turn. And then God does the rest. So when you're thinking about those people that you come into contact with. Remember that they are not too sinful to start a relationship with Jesus and that once that happens, all sorts of things can happen thereafter with that person. They are not too sinful to change the world. They're not too sinful to change a life. But sometimes the most difficult thing is are they still too sinful to be accepted into a church? Are we as a community, not just individuals relating to people outside the church, are we as a community willing to accept people when they're still in a mess? That's another part of it, isn't it? As a community of people, we have to be willing to be open and not closed. And that requires courage because there's safety in numbers, And there's safety in sort of being together and being a people, being set apart. God doesn't call us to safety. God calls us to go out into the world and to spread his gospel. Lots of ways of doing that. One of the best ways of doing that is to be loving to other people, to be aware of them. Not to look at their sin, but as God does, to look at their potential. So this week, 
when you're meeting people, and I'm going to try and do this as I drive on the road, which is always a difficult thing for me because I find lots of sinners surrounding me on the motorway. <laughs> I, will try and, I will try and think of them not as more sinful than me, but as having just as much potential for God to do extraordinary things. Let's pray. Father God, we, we recognise our own sin, but we're so much better at recognising the sin in others. We pray, Lord, that we will recognise the potential in others, recognise that spark of life that you see there, that glorious resurrection that you expect, and that grace that you provide to bring it about. Help us to see that in all of those around us this week. In Jesus' name.